Hello, Questers. This is Mandy, the host of Cast Request, inviting you to enjoy our podcast where we explore the rich and vibrant world of Patrick Rothfuss's best-selling fantasy series, The Kingkiller Chronicle, soon to be adapted as a major motion picture and television show produced by the award-winning creator of Hamilton, Lin-Manuel Miranda. Hungry for more content? Perhaps you will enjoy our recaps of HBO's Game of Thrones, Over the Garden Wall, animated Batman films, or our world-famous erotic fanfiction reads. Whatever you're in the mood for, if you love a good story, humor, impromptu parody songs, and thousands of pop culture references, you'll enjoy our show. You can find Cast Request on SoundCloud, iTunes, and of course, our amazing network, the Earth Station One Network at ESOPodcast.com. Welcome to the Duke and Duchess podcast. Welcome. We are here for episode 41. That's right. We're going over The Lies of Locke Lamora by Scott Lynch. And who are you? I'm the Duchess. I'm the Duke. In this episode, we're going to cover chapters 14 and 15, and then the interludes that follow each of them, ending with The Throne in Ashes. And next book club, we are going to finish the book. Yes. Ah! I'm excited. Super excited. This book has a well. I'm not, I'm not even going to go into how it's got a terrible it ending. It's got a. It sucks. Nothing gets wrapped up. <laughs> Nothing at all. You know, I would not have brought this book to your attention if it had a terrible ending. Listen, we we have had this discussion around movies. There are times where each of us thinks something is awesome, and the other one leaves going was that all about so it can happen now our taste in movies is very different than our taste in books not as different as our taste in tv shows we have completely different television show tastes how does that happen i don't know Hmm, that's interesting so spoiler policy yes so the spoiler policy is very simply that liz has read these books a few times i have not read them at all so I have no idea how this is going to end, and we won't discuss it until next week. Okay, so I'm really excited to hear what you thought of this section. I, on a count of three, let's both just blurt out our favorite part. Okay. okay? All right. So it's one, two, three, and then go, not go on three. Okay. All right. Okay, ready? One, two, two three. three. When he punches, punches a bitch the in the spider face. in the face. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Punching old broads. Yes. That's gender equality. Yeah. We've been talking a lot about it, gender equality. And and I love the gender equality in this in this book. <laughs> and the fact that, you know what? Old ladies can get punched in the face. Yeah. If they want to roll with the mobsters, stab them in the neck with a knitting needle. I love that she stabbed him with her knitting. <laughs> that was pretty awesome. Come on, you've wanted to stab somebody with a knitting needle. I so have. I so have. You know you have. Of course I you knitted have. a blanket a few years ago, and I, I used these jo- comically large wooden knitting needles. Do you remember that? Yes, they made me feel inadequate. I, <laughs> I fantasized more than once 
about stabbing zombies with those knitting needles. They look like they look like you were knitting with the stakes from Buffy the Vampire Slayer. <laughs> That's why I like them. <laughs> they are comedically large. Hey, that is my one zombie apocalypse skill that I feel like I would bring to the table in a survival scenario. Like I could knit you a sweater. <laughs> when it all came down, the world would not be without sweaters because of me. As long as I had a sheep. <laughs> well, you know, there's probably going to be a lot of skeins of yarn sitting in, you know, a, a Michael somewhere that doesn't have any staff. Oh, stop. You're getting me excited. <laughs> <laughs> You sure you don't want to cause a zombie apocalypse? <laughs> Let's talk about the book. We should talk about the book. So overall, what did you think of this section? So um, overall, I enjoyed it. There, it was. I thought it was pretty enjoyable. There were definitely a couple things where I was like, what? Get out of here. But it didn't stop my enjoyment of it. It was obviously difficult to stop that close to the end. And I I feel like as we get close to the end of these books, I tend to become less judgmental because it's like I can I can see the end coming and I want to hold my judgment until I've seen how it all wraps up. Right. And we've had some interesting discussions about how the pace that you're reading probably impacts your enjoyment of the book. I absolutely think for this book in particular that the pace that we're reading it impacts it. And for this book, I would say probably not in a positive way because I think this is a book that is meant for you to sit down and binge read it. You know, it's like it's popcorn reading. It's like Stranger Things on Netflix. You just sit down and you you just read the whole thing and you don't take the time to go through and think about every single little thing and analyze it the way we are. I think, yeah, I definitely think it, it has an impact on how, how we enjoy the book. So whereas for like a song of ice and fire or the King killer Chronicles, there's a lot of depth there. There's a lot of hidden layers and things that come back around. And, you know, when you drop a little hint, no matter how minute it is, it ties back a thousand pages later to something else. So far in this series, we're not getting anything like that. Right. And, you know, one of the strengths of this series is the way that Scott Lynch bounces around and uses the flashbacks to build tension. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the way he uses cliffhangers, not in an obnoxious way, but but to keep that dramatic tension going yeah, and yeah. Mm -hmm. you know, it heightens your expectations. It heightens your enjoyment of the story. And when you're kind of like stopping, because this is where we decided we were going to stop for the podcast or mm -hmm. for whatever reason, um, I think definitely it, it makes it less enjoyable. This novel is very much, you know, we joked about it before, but it's very much like an ocean's 11 type of movie. You know, you're, you're you're bouncing from place to place in this little piece of the puzzle and that little piece of the puzzle, but it's very heavily driven by the plot and the, and the action and the things that are going to happen. Not so much into how the historical you know impact how the something that happened 500 years ago 
is going to come to bear in our protagonist story. Like, it just doesn't have quite the same thing. Uh, not from a negative standpoint. The plot in this is very good. It's like, you know, it's got what was kind of missing, in my opinion, from The Name of the Wind. Like, The Name of the Wind is got fantastic writing, incredible prose, characters that are so realistic and in-depth, but not a goddamn thing happens in the book, you know? Well, I don't know if I'd say that not a goddamn thing happens, <laughs> but might definitely uh, less plot-dense. And on the other hand, I feel like the main difference... One of the main differences between this and Name of the Wind is that this book does not have the overarching mystery Correct. that keeps you drawn in with the King Killer Chronicles books. You know, yeah. with those books, we had the mystery of uh, who were the Chandrian, what's their deal, what what happened to the king, what, all yeah. these like kind of broad arcs that are thrown out there at the beginning. Mm-hmm. And this book does not have any of that. I mean, there's I mean, a, a, little a little bit with the Eldrin and who right. are the Eldrin, but... But that's not central to the story or to all. our character's quest. That's sort of a background thing. Exactly. If the Eldrin had shown up and stabbed Kahlo and Galdo in front of Locke in, like, chapter four, then then that would be a central part of... It's, right. But it's not. It's, right. It's not at all. And this book, like, I very much enjoy this book. I don't want to come across negative. It's just... I don't think it's as suited for a book club i would at the pace we're doing it i'm sorry i i would agree i would agree and and we've talked a little bit about this um on twitter and and off the podcast as well about what we're going to do next Mm -hmm. and i think we've talked about continuing with the series correct um but doing it in fewer episodes Mm -hmm. i think so and a little bit of a faster pace yeah, I think that's going to have to be be what we do for sure. But let's let's move ahead and let's start getting into the book. We're like 10 minutes in now and I don't think we've covered one word of this book club. So chapter 14 is called Three Invitations. And uh, in this chapter, basically, Locke is again able to dress up as Lucas Fairright and he shows up for a hang sesh with the Salvaras. Late night. Late night hang sesh. They, they're they chill in the close chamber and they sip on booze oranges Yeah, and uh, basically flatter each other. And Locke is there to try and get some more cash out of the Salvara so that he can go and enact his revenge on the Grey King. But they are following the instructions of the Duke Spider. They tell him that they, they're broke. They can't do it for him right now. Mm-hmm. But they try and get him to come along to the big gala that the Duke has every year at Raven's Reach on the Day of Changes. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So my my first thought in there is in, in the very beginning, part one of chapter 14, we get a reference to Lucas Fairwhite trying to secure, saying that he's securing one galleon and has a promising lead on a second galleon. And one of the things I noticed throughout this whole section there's just a ton of references to galleons and boats. And I think it's, I mean, they're throughout the book, don't get me wrong, because we're in a port city, you know, and so it's not surprising. But these are sort of extraneous. They don't necessarily have anything directly to do with the plot, but they keep coming up. 
And I feel like it's a foreshadowing about what's going to happen with the plague ship. Interesting thought. That's my thoughts. Very interesting. The other, the other thought I have is that, so the Solvaras, when they're talking to him and they're saying, oh, you know, Mr. Fairright, you must, Lucas, you must come with us. It's just amazing. Like they're doing their own false facing. They're doing their own acting because they know, they've already talked about this. They know what they're going to say. So they're putting on an act and Locke doesn't see through it at all. Yeah, that's, yeah, absolutely. Like, so the Salvaras, they're worthy false facers as well. You know, they are not without their own set of skills and they completely trick them. Right. And I like that in that I, I kind of like the Salvaras a little bit. You know, when we were yeah. introduced to them, it was okay. They, they think they're shrewd, but Locke is going to pull one over on them. And, and you kind of don't like them very much because they, they come up as greedy and not very smart. But through this whole experience, we've seen them kind of grow a little bit as characters and have some redeeming qualities too. And I mm-hmm. like that it's not that they're not just the kind of caricature nobles, the dupes that we first thought they were going to be. Yeah, no, they don't come across as patsies. Yes, yeah. You know, so yeah, I enjoy that as well. So in this interaction, we've bounced back and forth between Locke and the Salvaros and Jean, who is in his guise as a priest of Azagia. He's snooping around the docks. He's been trying to figure out what's going on with this plague ship. He's figured out that somehow the Grey King is sending money over there. Mm -hmm. He doesn't know why. But he decides to check out this warehouse that he's seen the Grey King's men snooping around at Mm -hmm. as well. And when he goes in, he finds he's walked into a trap set by the Barangia sisters mm-hmm. who have been watching him snoop around and figure he's up to something. He's up to in their business and they're, they're set a trap to, so they could attack him, not knowing who he was. Yeah. And when he reveals himself, they're like, Tannen. And then they have this epic, epic battle. I, I love, it was a very satisfying fight for me. I really like the action sequences in this book. And I thought it was a really cool fight scene. I think that Scott Lynch does action well and does sort of these individual fight scenes well. Fight scenes in fantasy novels tend to sometimes, for me, be the weak point. Even in this book, like the fight with the spiders beneath the echo hole, I was like, whatever. Like, it was okay, but I felt like let's just get this done with so we can find out what the hell is going on. Like it wasn't enjoyable in in any way. It was just in the way, but this fight I enjoyed. I I thought it was well described, particularly what I think I liked about it is how kind of like quick and down and dirty and nasty it was, you know, they didn't spend 15 minutes parrying each other and running around Mm -hmm. and knocking over tables and fighting up and down the stairs and swinging from chandeliers and, you know, and all that kind of crazy shit. I mean, this fight happened in probably 15 seconds, you know, and that's probably what it would have been. What I like about the way that Scott Lynch in general talks, describes fighting and especially when he's got John fighting these other humans is that, Fighting and how he fights is such an integral part of Jean's character. Mm-hmm. And it you feel connected to the character when you're reading his 
decisions during the fight, how he's thinking about his opponents, mm-hmm. how he's deciding what weapons to use, what what moves to make, all that kind of stuff. You're connecting with the character. It's not just fighting for the sake of fighting or describing action for the sake of it. Yeah. You're getting some character stuff too. So it, it was neat to watch John come in and he's or he's going to fight these two shark killers. Basically, mm-hmm. they fight sharks for a living. Yeah, well, okay. And they fight together for a living. Right. They're tr- they're twins. They're trained to fight together. Yeah. To take down one big, powerful opponent. So, you know, his only advantage is that he's seen them fight before. So he's able to use, you know, he sees one of the sisters come in for a feint. And he has seen them use this move before where one feints and the other attacks. So mm-hmm. he's, that is how he is eventually able to win the fight. Yeah. So, but I really like just watching the thought processes that go on. It's very satisfying to see him finally get revenge for Calo and Galdo because we find out that the Barangia sisters were the ones who killed them mm-hmm. and they kind of taunt him a little bit. Before we even get into the fight, Jean finds a pile of bodies, mm-hmm. two glass rights and two goldsmiths. So that's probably significant. Oh, I just I just figured out why two goldsmiths and two glassmiths. Right. So he finds a pile of bodies Glass whites and goldsmiths. And um, I, the other thing I found was interesting was that um, they come in and uh, he pulls off his mask and they're like, you, you know, yeah. and here they are, these like mass murderers, basically. But they they tell him he has some cheat, some cheek for impersonating <laughs> a priest. They're like, well, aren't you ballsy? <laughs> like, and again, we talked about that throughout this world, the superstitious fear these people have of their deities. You know, that they're not afraid to, they're not afraid of a lot of things, but you're going to piss off one of the deities. Oh, my goodness. And this is where, if this was a a different novel, a different type of story, that whole idea about the gods and the superstition, like if this was Patrick Rothfuss, those 12 gods, we'd have had background stories for all of them and the, you know, and the history of where they came from, and we'd know all these crazy things about why people think the way that they do. With Scott Lynch, it's much, much more subtle, you know, and it's it's a very effective showing and not telling because you just sort of see in people's behaviors the way they feel about these gods without him having to give you a shit ton of backstory and explanation. You don't have to sit down and interview you know, a priest and listen to all these stories within a stories to figure it out. Right. You kind of get the information that's important to the story. Yeah. Probably one of my favorite things about Scott Lynch's writing to this point is the way that he does story, excuse me, the way that he does world building. Because although I know some people feel like it's a little heavy handed on the exposition, I don't feel that way at all. I feel like it's, really well done in terms of just kind of giving you a little taste of, you know, what the world is like, what the history is like, and then some action on top of it. I I enjoy the world building a lot in this, in this novel. I agree. There's a lot of, you have to speculate a lot. And then, but then towards, I think the last interlude that we cover, he kind of lays out in a little more detail what the overall political structure is of the world. And up until then, you're just kind of guessing. You don't know what the kingdoms are, what, you know, Mm -hmm. you just really kind of are are left to figure that stuff out on your own. And it does make it seem more real. Yeah, absolutely. 
So this chapter also has one of my favorite lines in the book, and that is, Wicked Sisters, I'd like you to meet the Wicked Sisters. <laughs> I, that was a little cheesy. I loved it. <laughs> Shush, you're just jealous. <laughs> no, no. No, I'm not. The, that dude got a nasty thigh wound. I'm not jealous of anything. It's going to take him months to recover if this, you know, were, you know, realistic. Real life. And, yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, and and thank thank God it cut him in the way that it did. Otherwise, he wouldn't be able to walk at all. You know, it would have removed his his quad from his kneecap. So right. Well, I think that. He- Jean couldn't have walked away from that a fight with the Berengia sisters not very gravely wounded. I think it would have robbed them of their their menace that they've really had throughout the whole book. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. So the next part, the la- and the last part is we get the spider in her chambers and she gets some unexpected visitors. Dun dun dun. That's right. So the Grey King walks in looking fabulous. And he tells that old broad what's up. So this is this is what I have to say about the Grey King. So he walks in wearing gray, 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 and gray with a red silk scarf tied around his neck. And I'm like, is this like Charles Nelson Riley? You don't know who Charles Nelson Riley is, do you? Of course I do. <laughs> but just for, you know... You could just, why don't you just tell me though? I mean, you could just explain it for the listeners who don't know. For those of you who are under the age of 40, (laughs) (laughs) Charles Nelson Riley was a famous actor back in the 60s, 70s, and 80s uh, in the US. He he was in everything. He was like a bit player in everything from like Rowan Martin's Laugh-In to doing voices on SpongeBob SquarePants and all dogs go to heaven. But he was this flamingly homosexual man, giant glasses, always wearing a scarf, huge butterfly collars, and just over-the-top flamboyantly homosexual, which I always found to be weird because it's this time that was, like, uber-conservative, but yet, like, you had characters like Charles Nelson Riley and Liberace, who were just like over the top homosexuals. So when this guy walked, when the Great King walks in wearing this just obviously very carefully thought out uniform with this bright red silk scarf around his neck, I'm like, it just reminds me of Charles Nelson Riley. Okay. Apparently, I'm the only one. You are in this room allowed to have your weird associations. How many Big Lebowski references have we been able to tie into this book? A lot. Charles Nelson Riley's not that weird, I guess. See also Paul Lind. I mean, I know who Paul Lind is. <laughs> Maybe Let, you should tell our listeners who are. Let's move on. All those mooks who don't know who he is. <laughs> so. so Somebody over the age of 40 will get that. I mean, there's got to be one or two listeners to this podcast who are older than me. (laughs) 
So anyway, the spider gets a visit from Caparaza mm-hmm. and his toady, the falconer. And uh, he he tells Vorchenza that he wants to come to the ball. He's always dreamed of coming to the ball. And she uh, she is, she's like, what? Who the fuck do you think you are? That's exactly what she's like. Yeah, this is not that kind of relationship, pal. Yeah, she, she gives him the what for. Like, yeah. this is completely inappropriate. And so, of course, the falconer then turns around and, and does his uh, little mojo where he fogs her brain up and convinces her that she's delighted to invite the Grey King to the ball and that he's going to bring some sculptures with him, yeah, some and, gifts for the Duke. And now we figure out how he's working all this magic. So one of the things I was thinking is that the spider, when she's thinking about things before they arrive, she says... How did he know to exile my spies? It was one of three options. Either my people are getting sloppy, Raza is some sort of uber-observant Sherlock character, or three, there's a breach in my trust. And I feel like it's obviously number three. Right. And, and now we can see why. You know, And we can also see how he was able to convince Barsavi's garistas to betray him as well. Most likely, although I the the sense I had was that some of his garistas uh, did it for just for the greed. You know, it seemed to me like he went to Barsavi's like most loyal garistas second in commands and cut deals with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then had the the first in commands killed. But either way, obviously, very well thought out scheme planned for years in advance, most likely. And so far has been an ironclad scheme by the Grey King. So we, you can tell that this is the next phase of his plan. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't just to steal the underworld out from under Barsavi, even though he tells the spider that he has dreamed of Barsavi's downfall for 20 years. Yeah. So, And they talk about the secret peace as well, and they both express a desire to keep the secret peace going. He admires the secret piece, and Vorchenza says, you know, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. It was an arrangement that was fruitful on both sides. So they agree they're going to keep that going. Mm-hmm. But he can't come to the ball unless he casts a spell on her first. Mm-hmm. I don't think the Great King wants the secret piece. Oh. I don't think he does. So are we ready for the next one? Yes, the interlude after this chapter is a short one, and it's called The Daughters of Camor. Mm-hmm. And it's where the Camori prostitutes learn the power of unionizing. Darn straight they do. That's all I have to say. <laughs> I said that this is the story of Rude Trevor, who's a pimp. And uh, <laughs> Lynch says that to say he was an intemperate, murderous lunatic would wound the feelings of most intemperate, murderous lunatics. Yeah, I like that as well. So it tells the story of of the guilds of prostitutes and how they came yeah. to power in Camor. Yeah, and they sent a message to you, Rudy. A message to you, Rudy. Totally know that song. <laughs> I'm just, sh- but just for I, the, I'm just showing my age. Just for the listeners who haven't heard that song, so. You know, before ska had its big resurgence in the 90s, it actually existed, you know, prior to that. And there was this band in the 80s from Britain who had a hit with a song called A Message to You, Rudy. 
and it wasn't about, it's relevant because it wasn't about a guy named Rudy. It was a message to rude boys who were like punk rockers. Oh, that is relevant. Like street punks. I mean, I knew that. <laughs> that is, that's very Man, relevant. I'm just, I am that old dude who's like, well, actually. <laughs> now, I love the Rude Trevor character too. But you know what? I, I did have a problem with this interlude. What, what was your problem? My problem is that it's a story about Rude Trevor instead of a story about the brave girl who cuts his femoral artery and then sits on his back while he bleeds out. So that chick needs not only to have a name, but a holiday named after her. But she doesn't get a name, you know? And there's all these female characters who don't get names, but a bunch of the male ones who do. Like, that's... I have a problem with that. You know, I that had not occurred to me before. You know, what I took away from this interlude was what Lynch's female characters and what he seems to push in his female characters is that they are uh, empowered in this world. Uh, They might not have names or very many speaking lines. (laughs) But But they can do anything a man can do. But the female characters that we do see are not in any way, they're not really disenfranchised in this world. You know, they're not wilting flowers either. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, The quote I have was that when Barsavi took over, he was wise enough to understand that the women of Camor could be underestimated only at great peril to one's health. And so we get this interlude, and that's the main message of the interlude, right after the falconer and the Grey King are trying to pull the wool over the spider's eyes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, I'm glad you pointed that out because I have to say I spent some time wondering what this interlude was actually about. Because if you look at a lot of the interludes... They are directly related to either the chapter that precedes them or the chapter that follows them in some way. And I was thinking about it from the other angle, and I'm like, where where are prostitutes going to come to bear, like, in the next story? Like, like, there weren't any, like, prostitute characters, or there wasn't any examples of, like, populist uprising, <laughs> like how... Like, as we go into the next chapter, there's a lot of conversation about what happens to the people in the town and how they're partying and all these things because the Duke is having the the day of changes. And I'm like, is he trying to hint that there's going to be a popular uprising? Like, what is he trying to hint at? And I didn't quite see that it had more to do with the spider than anything else. So I'm glad you pointed that out. Right, because we end the chapter before it with the interaction with a spider and the gray king and the chapter that comes right after is called spider bite yeah and so it's the spider has been built up as being the most powerful person in Camor. yeah and the fact that she's a little old lady is something that we quite enjoy Mm -hmm. and so i think that's what this is the main message of that is and that and we get to see what happens when Locke falls into her clutches in the next chapter called spider bite Mm mm-hmm Chad gives me this look when I say something kind of cheesy. (laughs) It's really cute. The whole premise of this podcast is something cheesy. Exactly. I was like, 
let's have a podcast and call it the Duke and Duchess. And then you're like, I'm the Duchess. And I'm like, come on, we're not doing that. And now we're all the way back to episode zero. <laughs> now that's a callback right there. That's a serious callback. <laughs> this is all about being cheesy. You cheese it up as much as you want to. You go right ahead. And you can slow blink at me when I do. That's what he does. Blink, blink. Blink slowly. <laughs> Tiny minuscule head shake. Okay. Hey, you're not That's the one wife. throwing out the weird ass like 60s television references. <laughs> like daytime talk from 1971. I'm the one doing that. So we all have our things, Liz. <laughs> So chapter 15 is called Spider Bite. And we start off with Locke getting ready to go to the ball. Abelius is fretting over him. Jean says, you're henpecking him without having the decency to marry him first. Yeah. was pretty funny. And Locke says that these physicers are handy things, but I think next time you should pay a bit extra for the silent version. <laughs> he says it's nothing but a routine evening with the Duke and his entire court assembled in a glass tower, 600 feet in the air. What could possibly what go could wrong? What could possibly go wrong? Well, it's interesting to me that the chapter begins and ends in that room. And it begins with Jean and Abelius worrying about Locke making it out of there. And for good reason, because he almost doesn't. But ultimately, the way the chapter ends, it looks like Jean and Abelius were the ones who should have been worried. Well, and it also... About themselves. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It reinforces something we've talked about a couple of times that this whole idea of a confidence scheme is unheard of in this world because Abelius, when he kind of gets a gist and figures out what sees what Locke is able to do and he knows what their plan is, he doesn't go, oh, you're a con artist. Or, oh, I, I've heard of someone who's done that before. Yeah. He says, I've never conceived of such a thing as this. So it really is just a, a brand new kind of crime. Yeah. So it helps to remember that when we see the way other characters react or how do they get away with this kind of thing. So the next section is the day of changes and we get a, a description of what that means for the city. Yeah. And everyone is absolutely hammered. And I'm trying to remember the last, when was the last time everybody in this book was hammered? When was that? Oh, yeah. Right when they decided to kill Kappa Barsavi and all shit broke loose. So that leads me to believe that Kappa Raza just likes to get everybody drunk and then cut all their heads off. Well, his plague ship is preparing for action. It's Yes. I did not catch that the first read through. So it was not until the second read through because Scott Lynch does a clever job of just sandwiching this description in the middle of all these other descriptions about what's going on during the day of changes. And then there's a handful of paragraphs, just a couple paragraphs where he's like, and on this ship, they prepared buckets of sand because of course there would be fires and made sure everybody had a full belly and not a one of them was anything other than the tip top shape of perfect health. Oh, and by the way, they were giving out bread that had silver and just rolls into something else. So the first time through, I didn't catch that at all. Because you were like, blah, 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 description of blah, blah, blah. <laughs> but that, so it's cleverly hidden away in there, this idea that the ship is getting prepared for something. And I, I'm, 
I'm wondering what it what it is. You know, are they trying it? Are they trying to mount a fighting retreat? Is that their way of getting out of dodge if things go south? I don't know. Are they going to firebomb the whole city? I, I don't know. I don't know. But if history's any indicator, now is when the Grey King likes to do something dramatic. Yep. And he is a singular opportunity in that we are told several times that this is the only day of the year that the Duke opens his home. It is the only day of the year where every single peer of Camor is in the same place. Correct. The same glass tower. Yep. So one other minor thing in this section that I noticed is that we they mentioned the the new priest of Paralandro who has come into yeah. town. <laughs> and so we've speculated a little bit like... What is the, how, how are they getting away with this? What is the overarching structure of the priesthood? And so we, we kind of realized that there really isn't a, ve- a terribly structured, like overarching church, but well, there is something. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know that I would agree with that because it sounds to me like, I mean, one of the things I always questioned was, is Chains legitimately a priest of Paralandra? Well, according to to the Church of Paralandra, they thought he was. Right. So, you know, from all outward appearances, yeah, he was a priest of Paralandra. And the Church clearly thought so, because when, the, you know, when their church burned down and their priest, you know, died, Locke, they thought, they everyone assumes died, within a matter of days, they had a new one on site. So I would say it's, I would say it's fairly well organized for the time. Right. But it's not um it's not the kind of thing where they're sending out people to check up on. No, not you know, yeah. Not organized in that. It it was loosely organized so that Chains and his gang were it's not a continuity error, I guess is what I'm pointing mm, out. Yeah. That Chains and his gang were able to get away with what they got away with. Oh no, no, yeah, I would agree with that. So at the ball, I Really enjoy this section where Locke, as Lucas Fairwright, is at the ball and the kind of interact couple of interactions that he has. Mm-hmm. Uh, he has a one with Stephen Raynar, who is the head midnighter, mm-hmm. and he kind of bumps into them right as they come off the elevator. He's mm-hmm. there with the Salvaras, and he's like, "Oh, you must go and uh, visit Angie Avesta. Yeah, yeah. She's off knitting, and they make all these like very like ham-fisted comments about how senile she yeah, is. But you just must meet her. So Stephen Reynard, who is native to the far northeast. Yes. Like Vermont. <laughs> right. So he's into live music and organic farming. Flip-top head. Absolutely. <laughs> he's got a degree in art therapy, but he works at a food co-op. <laughs> you know what I mean. I know exactly he's, what you he's mean. He's from Vermont. <laughs> Hi, Melinda. <laughs> so we also see uh the sculptures that the gray king yeah brought to the feast and there there's this spectacular looking glass and gold yes and it wasn't until we started recording that i was like oh glass and goldsmiths so the so those people they killed were the people who worked on this right did the crafting for them and then because they couldn't uh, know what was going to go down or be able to point the finger back at anybody. They just went ahead and killed them. Yep. They cleaned them up. Cleaned them up. So he also has two, what I found 
funny and satisfying interactions. One with Maraggio, whose yes. clothes he is wearing. And Maraggio... Do you like the cut of my fabric? <laughs> comes right just up and is like, excuse me, sir. And Locke is just able to turn it around and be like... Yeah. And Maraggio just keeps looking at him confused, like walking away <laughs> being like, the hell just happened there? <laughs> now, that was pretty funny. And then he has a run-in, of course, with the Grey King. I prefer to make all my purchases by the cask. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and, and Fairwhite likes to make sure that he gives value for like value. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. wink. I'm going to put your ass in a barrel, too. Exactly. So, yeah, very, uh, you know, very cold little interaction. What I liked, and one of the things that I, I noted is that the area, I, I don't know if this is anything at all or if it's totally coincidental, but the area that the Grey King, you know, he's coming from the floor below them, I believe, and... So Locke is on the one upper floor. People are eating and having a good time and drinking. But the level below them, they are hammered. They are sloshed, you know, having trouble standing upright. And that's the area the Grey King just came from. And once again, it seems like the Grey King likes to get people absolutely sloppy drunk and then do something crazy over the top so that they're too inebriated to do anything about it well that's just good business that just makes sense you know just makes sense right you could t this plan is just meticulously thought out it's obviously something whatever is going to happen is something that he has planned down to the last detail you know Locke and his band who are the best of the best the schemers of all schemers are still being outmaneuvered at every turn and it's not because i don't think it's because the gray king is a better schemer than them it's just that this is obviously something he's been working on for decades well and he has a lot more resources and he has a bonds mage and he has a freaking wizard yeah who can do anything so Locke gets dragged down to finally meet the spider <laughs> and it's you could tell that that she's just she's delighted this is the first time she's been able to reveal who she is to someone who can appreciate it. Well, yeah, well, at first, what I enjoyed is at first, you know, as you said, they, they keep talking about how she's incredibly senile. And he walks in the room and she's just sitting there knitting. And the Doña Salvara says, just watch her for a second. I'll be right back. And he is so unaware of the threat that she has that he just he doesn't even look at her like he's just like some old lady he just turns his back starts looking around at the furniture looking at you know the painting like he just doesn't even consider her like not at all and then she stabs and him then in the she neck. stabs him in the neck <laughs> you know like i mean talking about getting somebody to underestimate you he he treats her like a pet. Like if they said, watch my cat. And then the cat walked up and stabbed him in the neck with poison. So she stabs him in the neck with the, the a grief willow bark poison and offers him the antidote if he cooperates with her 
investigation. And it's unclear what she exactly wants from him. She wants him to surrender. And I think she wants him to give up his accomplices. Yeah. He's not willing to do that, obviously. But she's got him cornered. And she is she is loving. You know, here's an adversary that's kind of worthy of her intellect. Mm-hmm. And he's she's able to just really enjoy his surprise at who she is. And she knows she has him cornered. She has all of her men, her midnighters, on every oh, yeah. level of the tower, guarding the door. There's no way he's getting out of here. No. And so she is just planned and wanted this moment, just the two of them. She, in turn, underestimates Locke. <laughs> well, she thinks... what that, he is willing to do... Yes, exactly. ...to get out of that situation. She is, you know, amongst the refined. And one of the things in the first interaction where we learn who the spider is, is she talks about how the Thorn of Camor is not violent. Everything is done with trickery and subtlety and a touch of grace... Mm-hmm. But never violence, never any, no, no drop of blood, never anything like that. So she looks at him and thinks this is, you know, some gentleman thief, you know, some, some new thing, but, but definitely a gentleman and just simply does not think that he could be so gauche as to, as to punch but, her square in the jaw. It does. And so Locke says, all right. And he punches her in the teeth, grabs the <laughs> antidote, ties her to the chair. Yeah. So, and then the things that happen next can only be described as, if for me, as evidence that the 13th God is real and is looking out for Locke Lamora. Because otherwise, there's no... I mean, what happens next is just bordering on outlandish in terms of how he manages to escape. If he had actually climbed his whole, like if he had walked out the window and there happened to be handholds there and he climbed his ass all the way down 600 feet to the ground, I would I would have thought, okay, it's just ridiculous. But the fact that he prays to the 13th God and then this like, you know, the chained thing happens to be coming down right when he does it it leads me to believe that the divine part of it is true i would agree with that that's that's my assessment as well you know and and i'm i'm just beginning to think that lock lamora is like the high priest of the crooked warden and it's and it's all real and that's the the central part of his character and why he gets away with the outlandish shit that he does. Because when he punched her in the face and tied her up, he had no idea that he was going to be able to get out of that room. He could have opened that window and those, the walls on the outside of that tower could have been as smooth as glass. He didn't, it's not like he had a, a plan. He didn't know he was going to be able to make it out of there. He's just, he's thinking and shit's unfolding before him. He is clearly the favorite of, of the Crooked Warden. It's it's the only kind of explanation. No, and I think we've talked about this before. One of the major themes of this book that I see is faith and devout faith versus faith for show. Mm-hmm. And I think it's just a really interesting, you know, when you have these spiritual systems in fantasy novels, 
they tend to fall into one of two camps. Either the the deities are real and they're, they're characters in the books, they take a real active part, mm-hmm. or they're just sort of for show and they're part of like a, a myth mythology of the to sh- kind of show you something about the people mm-hmm. but they're not they don't take an active part in the story or they're not even real at all not even real at all yeah and this seems to kind of be in the middle like you're not really sure you, mm-hmm. you kind of at first glance would think okay these are the deities in this book are not real they don't really actually do anything but then you get these hints that maybe they're not they're not actually characters in the book we don't ever see anything from their point of view or they don't appear to anyone Mm -hmm. but at the same time you get these little hints that there's something going on there well the other thing that i think that i find very interesting about that is that typically the people who would be blessed by the gods are those who are devout and full of faith well really the only characters we've seen in this book who are devout and full of faith are the gentleman bastards. So we've come to the end of that chapter. And the last thing we're going to talk about is a short interlude. No, we haven't. We haven't. We missed something very, very important. Oh, oh, oh. Which is that Locke tries to go home. Oh, yes. And tell Jean and Abelius, we got big news. And when he walks into the room... There's somebody else there waiting for him, and it's the falconer. The falconer. So Locke makes his improbable escape where he jumps off the side of a glass tower onto a moving cage elevator, manages to crawl himself inside, bribes the guard. Oh, so what I love, too, is that after he punches Dame Vorchenza in the face and ties Mm. her to a chair, he steals her purse. Oh, yeah, of course. (laughs) And he's able to bribe the the guards to... um, to let him go without saying anything. Yeah. That that shape you saw flying off the towers was a bird, right? Yeah. <laughs> Biggest damn bird I ever saw. So, yeah, that was pretty cool. So, yeah, the last time Locke did something that was improbable and should have died was when he made his way out of that barrel without drowning. And then immediately thereafter, something really horrific happened. And this time he makes it uh, you know, has a pretty similar insane sort of escape that you wouldn't think would be possible. And lo and behold, what's the next thing that happens? He walks into a room and Abelius and John and the Falcon are there. So now I don't think it's going to end the same way. I don't know how it's going to end. I think somehow Locke is going to get the upper hand on the Falconer or escape. I, I don't know, but Every time something goes improbably right for him, there's always a right cross waiting right behind it to smack him right in the balls. I hadn't noticed that before, but that is a really good observation. Well done. So are we ready to talk about the move on to the interlude? Yes. Okay, mm-hmm. so the interlude is called The Throne in Ashes. And basically it lays out for you why people are so afraid of Bond's mages. Yeah. Well, and we had another interlude where we talked about how you don't cross a bonds mage, but it was just people saying you don't want to cross a bonds mage. It was chains telling Locke, right? Yeah, correct. Okay, so kind of telling you who they were and stuff. Yeah, exactly. But it was saying nobody crosses a bonds mage because they'll mess with you. But now we kind of get a specific historical example of exactly 
why you don't fuck with a bonds mage. And we also get confirmation of what we've speculated about up until now, that there used to be kind of what's happened historically in in the among these city-states. So it starts with the story of Theron Pell, which was the jewel of the Eldren. It was the biggest, the fanciest of all the alien glass cities. <laughs> and it was the, the center of an empire that encompassed all of the southern city-states, Camor mm-hmm. included. Um, other city-states that we've heard mentioned were Carthane, Lashame, Talisham. So a lot of these city-states. Right. Mm-hmm. They're all kind of... Um, mentioned as part of the Theron kingdoms. And it declined a little when the Vadrans appeared in the north, and that is who Locke is pretending to be. Mm-hmm. So a northern the Vadrans were Vikings, basically, mm. seafaring. They came in mm-hmm. and they formed their own kind of stronghold in the north. But it wasn't until the Guild of Bonds Magi formed that the throne was destroyed. Mm-hmm. So basically what happened was these all these sorcerers in Carthane got together, decided they were going to kill everyone else who wasn't in their guild. Yep. And the the king in Therapel was said that's bullshit. We're not doing that. We're not doing that. And uh managed to kill 12 of them. Yeah. And the bonds magi destroyed the city and, and, and every his, living thing around his it. entire army. 400 Bonds ma- uh, Magi lined up against the king's entire army. They messed him up. And it wasn't even close. And they destroyed everything in the city except for the throne. So that just I just love that image. What a weird, yeah. creepy image. And uh, it says, in that image is what comes to mind when most men think to cross a Bonds Mage. The image of an empty chair standing alone in a dry sea of desolation. So then the first line of the next chapter is going to be, nice chair, asshole. <laughs> nice chair, asshole. Right. You know, or, that's my chair, asshole. Get out of my chair. I called fives, dick. Something like that. Fives. I called fives, dick. Get out of my chair. <laughs> I haven't called fives since college. <laughs> All right. So we are we ready for predictions? Yes. What do you think is going to happen? All right. So I think the Grey King doesn't want the secret piece. Good prediction. I think he wants to get rid of the secret piece. I also think he's going to try and destroy the Duke and take over Kamor. All right. But the reason why I think he's going to get rid of the secret piece, I think this is one of the old uh, Kappas, Garistas, who was chased off by Barsabi. Mm Mm-hmm. All those years ago. Uh, and I think that's where the vengeance on Barsavi thing comes from. Mm. And then obviously destroying the Duke because that just seems to be what, what he's gearing up for. I also think that he's been using that same kind of magic that he used on the spider on other people around town in order to gain influence and inside information. And I think there's something huge that's going to end up with that plague ship. I don't know what it is, but I somehow feel like Locke and Jean are going to take that plague ship or destroy it when they're trying to escape town. Like, I feel like things are going to hinge on that plague ship. 
Very good predictions. I don't know. I don't I don't feel confident about it. Yeah, you're going to love the end. You're all going to love it. I mean, most of you have read it already. <laughs> all right. Are you ready for listener interactions? Yes. And I have a game at the end. Ooh, fun. Hmm. All right. So Adam at LFC Adam 88185 says, is it nearly time for dream casting? Fantasy Ooh, casting. We haven't really done that. We haven't. No, we have to think about that. We got some time. And he says, also, question, do either of you have the problem where you picture an actor or actress for the role while you're reading and now you can't imagine them as anybody else, even if your brain decides to pick a terrible casting? Yes, that just happened to me. Tell us all about it. I, okay, so I'm rereading The Expanse by James S.A. Corey. Mm-hmm. Fantastic sci-fi series. And uh, the latest book just came out, so I'm rereading it to work my way up there. So I just finished the first book, Leviathan Wakes. And I realized, so I had pictured one of the characters, the character of Amos, as the guy who played the chief in Battlestar Galactica. Mm-hmm. And then I realized just this this time through, and I've read these books like three times at least, however many books have come out. I don't know. I've read them a bunch. That Amos has obviously got to be a black dude. So he, it's all wrong. And he's <laughs> in my head now. He's this weird melding of like that actor and the guy. Edwards who, James almost. And like yeah. uh, the guy who plays. Um, oh, gosh. He's on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. And he plays his mm, Oh, his name has slipped my mind. It's not that important. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> yes, I know exactly what he means, and it's so annoying. <laughs> All right. So Andy Keithley at Andy Keithley says, regarding bad reviews, any review in which the reviewer admits to not finishing the book is immediately disqualified. You don't watch one scene from a movie and then get to trash the whole movie. Anyway, keep up the good work. All right. You know, I made it to Dark Tower until there was one part that just really turned me off i made it through song of Susanna, which is like the you made it through a bunch of books sixth, though it was like the sixth book or something. yeah yeah it wasn't like you stopped 40 pages in right that's true that's true it's completely but i different. get that like something happened that that was i just for me was so stupid that i was like nope done oh yeah that's forget how, it yeah like like I, I just it just completely <laughs> lost me i just had that happen in the book series that i'm reading mm. but I can't stop. I can't stop reading. I have to see it through. And it's killing me. And I think it's all going to be for naught. It sucks. I'm not happy about I've it. I have had that happen plenty of times as well. And it, and it, and it was annoying. I've I, rarely ever just completely put a whole series down one book from the end. I, I'm waiting for some sort of redemption. I'm hoping somehow it can be brought back. Ian James Crone says... Uh, Outing the Spies, this is by uh, by the Caparaza, was a power play against the Spider. Yeah. Absolutely it was. Uh, Ryan Fenrick on Facebook said, anybody else cheering for a lock to die? I mean, the only way to get into Melowan's lemon-scented box if it ne- <laughs> is that it needs to be lockless. <laughs> I saw that and it cracks me up. Nathan Hernandez uh... says... This is too good not to share. And then he sent us a Vimeo link where somebody put together a 
like opening credits for a Lies of Locke Lamora movie that's phenomenal. If you haven't watched that video. I haven't watched it. You have to go find it on, on our Twitter. Or I'm sorry, that's, yeah, that's on Twitter. Nathan Hernandez, Twitter. It's pretty awesome. It's really, like, I, I wouldn't send you to watch just any video because a lot of times people send videos and I'm like, eh, whatever. This is really phenomenal. Whoever put that together did a really good job. Uh, Travis Dundas says a couple of things. Uh, first, to the anonymous reviewer calling Lies of Locke Lamora Dullsville, I say, fuck you, Joe Boo. <laughs> Second, I vote again for The Blade Itself by Abercrombie to mm. do next. Ashley Marie. Yeah, I'm thinking that's one I, I, I would like to read. Ashley Marie says, from a lifelong Cleveland fan, A plus on the Joe Boo reference. She also says, according to the audiobook, uh, Guia, Guilla, as a Guilla, as a Guia, as a Guia. Oh, we've been saying, I've been saying as a Guia. As a Guia, yeah. She said it's pronounced with the U having a W sound like Guia. And I was able to confirm this thanks to Luke Sturzel, who is at uh, Squeetus, S-Q-U-E-A-T-U-S, who sent us a free copy of the Lies of Locke Lamoria audiobook oh, that's through awesome. Audible. And I've been listening to it. And it says Azaguia. Azaguia, gotcha. And so, it says Jean Tannen. Yeah, it definitely doesn't say Jean. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, that ship has sailed. <laughs> Put its yellow flags up and it <laughs> sailed its sick plague ass out of the port. <laughs> Captain Gene at the helm. I'm Gene. And I'm going to get us out of this bay and into the ocean. Come on down. Come on down to Gene Tannins. So Theo uh, sent us a response about, you know, and Theo is reading along with us. So he sent us a response about the uh, what we read last time, and he said, the stuff I loved, and I'm paraphrasing, I loved Locke being fair white again. You know what I realized is that a bunch of us have been calling him fair right, and I've been calling him fair right. It's fair white. Fair white? Yeah. It's really hard not to put the rrr. Isn't it's it? It's like Simmons. Yeah, exactly. And King Killer. Yep. I couldn't not say, I mean, I knew it was Simmons. But it's harder to say. I, mm-hmm. I got used to it. Yes, Lucas Fairwhite. So Locke being Fairwhite and all of that, punching Vorchenza out, being all civil and evil with the Grey King, uh, confusing Moraggio, love the escape too. Stuff that he didn't like. Jean Tanner versus the sisters. Exciting to read, but I just didn't believe that Jean would be good enough to win it. And then there's the Deus Ex Bonds Mage. And and I'm with him because the Bonds Mage thing is one thing I really don't like. I'm hoping there's some way of kind of redeeming that. How is this dude not take like there's gotta be some way to tie that back? I just I'm holding off judgment until I see how it all plays out, but it's hard for me not to say you have a bonds mage, you can do anything. This guy can do anything. Anything he wants to. Like, it's just, it seems, there's no, because we don't really have like a magic system. Right. It's not explained. Um, We have one mysterious character who's a Bonds mage. So, and one of the things he seems to be able to do is mess with people's sensory 
input and output. Well, what doesn't he seem to be able to do is the thing. Like he can, he can do just about. He can cripple people. He can mess with their sensory output. He can warg into animals. He can take over people's brain. Like he can. There's nothing we, we haven't seen. We to be don't able to know do. that he can warg into animals. We know that everything he seems to be able to do is get into people's minds. And make them think they're seeing things. Or we can get into animals' heads. And animals yeah. as well. I don't mean warging in, in the, you know, in the, in a strict mm-hmm. Song of Ice and Fire way. I, I just mean that he can get inside of the head of, of animals and control them. Right. So we only have this one character. So there's no basis for comparison. And nobody else in the world has any real idea about what they can do. Yeah. So, so yeah, it is an interesting way to approach a magic system. Uh, again, I, I'm holding off judgment until I see how it ends. But I'm I'm kind of with him on the Deus Ex Bonds Mage. So we'll see how it ends. So we talked about this a little bit at the beginning, but there was over the last couple of weeks we've had some conversations with uh, with listeners through Facebook, through Twitter a poll I put up on Twitter around what should we do. It seemed like we were getting a lot of input from people saying, hey, you should do this book. Hey, you should do that book. But we weren't getting a lot of people saying, hey, you should really keep doing The Gentleman Bastards. So I was trying to get a sense from people of, is that because they want us to do something different? Or is that simply because we're already doing gentlemen bastards so why would you make that recommendation of course you wouldn't make it so we put those feelers out there and it seems like the overwhelming majority of folks want us to continue doing the gentlemen bastards they'd also like us to do other things ideally at the same time you know they like us to be professional podcasters and so would we i mean if if, if we we can dream if we could find a way to quit our day job we do podcast every day but it seems like people want us to continue doing it as we talked about earlier, I do think for the next book, at least for the next one, we'll try and do it at a faster pace. We're not going to do it in like one episode or anything crazy like that, but we'll definitely do it at a quicker pace, reading bigger chunks, I think. Yes, and I think we may also be sprinkling in more one-offs about um, movies, shows, maybe other shorter novels, um, comic books. Uh, So look for more of that content as well. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we have a, a time in April where we're, we're going to be going away. So we'll have a couple weeks where we'll be gone, but we're going to have podcasts during that time. They'll just be one-offs that we've recorded ahead of time, just so people know kind of what's coming up around the bend. We had a, another five-star review on iTunes. Fantastic. And it's from Girl Melanie, and she says... I just started reading The Name of the Wind, and I'm so very happy that I found both of you. Being able to read the book and listen to the podcast at the same time really enhanced my experience with the book. I can't wait to start the next book and follow along with both of you. I'm going to join Twitter so I can follow you in real time. Fantastic. Thanks for staying up late and recording the podcast. Awesome. So we thank you, girl, Melanie. We love the iTunes reviews. And I have a quick game for you. Nice. Are you excited? I am excited. Are you ready? It's not a physics quiz, is it? No, it's not a quiz on physics. All right. No, no. Don't worry about that. Bad at physics. (laughs) No, you're not. No. So you're really good at literature, and you have a great vocabulary, 
what do you know about mafia slang? <laughs> Nothing. Let's use, I know more about physics. <laughs> let's use that. Mo- let's use that vocabulary. You know, we're learning about we're learning about thieves and organized crime, so we want to test it out. So I'm going to give you a few words, and I want you to tell me the correct definition of them. Okay, it's multiple choice. Okay, so first one is a brugade. So is a brugade a a short metal rod used for knocking mofos out? <laughs> Two. A word for a family or a gang, or three, a contact who is part of the legitimate society. So somebody you know who's out of the family, but who's a contact. Say the word again. Brugade. Brugade with a B? Yeah. Yeah. B-R-U-G-A-D. And what was B again? Uh, the, The word for a family or a gang. I'm going with B. Good guess. That's right. Yes. You sure you're not in the mafia? I'm positive. All right. So the next one is, what does the word cleaning mean? Does it mean murdering a snitch? Does it mean taking the necessary steps to avoid being followed? Or does it mean hiding where illegal goods are coming from? C. It's B. Oh. Cleaning is taking the necessary steps to avoid being followed. Oh, okay. All right. The next one is agumad. What does agumad mean? Is it a getaway car, a tax that is paid to other gangs for protection, or a mistress? A mistress. Yes. Two that is out correct. of three. That's correct. I'm good. All right. What does the phrase hitting the mattress mean? Does it mean going to war with another family? Does it mean to lay low? Or does it mean to go to a loan shark? Go to a loan shark? It means to go to war with another family. Oh, all right. All right. And what does, what is the VIG? Is the VIG the name for a lieutenant, a word meaning lieutenant? Is it the guy who has all the details of the plan? Or is it a word that means interest on a loan? Uh, B. It's the interest that's on a loan is the VIG. All right. The juice. So you're like 40% mafia. That is a lot more mafia than I thought I would be. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. All right. So that was just for funsies. I hope everybody enjoyed it. So again, thank you for the iTunes reviews. We love the iTunes reviews, but what we love more than anything is word of mouth. You can find us on our podcast at the Duke and Duchess podcast.com. You can find us on Twitter at the DND podcast on Facebook at the Duke and Duchess. And if you want to chat with us, Twitter is a good way, but also you can join our Facebook podcast group. Look for the Duke and Duchess podcast group. So thank you everyone. And good night. Good night.